0: Now, hey, good morning, my name's Dave, I'm one of the pastors here. Um, Definitely a Bruno Mars fan, um, but we don't have him on August 12th. Uh, Glad you're here with us this morning though. Uh, Today we're gonna talk as we're continuing our series called Heart Matters, Lessons in the Life of David. Today we're talking um, really about one word. Um, It's the word decay. You've never been as excited as you are right now for a sermon, are you? And so I just wanted to start by defining the sort of word that's in the middle of our message for this morning. Decay Google defines it this way: to decline in excellence, prosperity, health, etc., to deteriorate. I've been thinking this week about how one of the hardest things to see in this world is when something that you love begins to deteriorate. Maybe it was a new car. And it was your baby, and you did your best for a lot of years to keep it shiny and new and clean and dent-free, but then weather and dirty shoes and spills and kids who opened their doors too wide in the parking lot took their toll. And this week, I was talking with a pastor friend of mine, a guy who pastors a, a little church just south of us, a guy who I'm getting to know and love a lot, and we were hanging out, and he was sharing with me that you know, he, like me, he used to play basketball a ton and he would talk about how uh, he remembers the days when he could go down the lane, elevate and dunk on people in the name of Jesus and how fun and exhilarating that was. And he's a little bit older than I am and so now his youngest kids, his youngest two boys are twins. They're eighth graders and he says they never got a chance to see me really play ball. And he said, these days to play with them, to like go out and shoot hoops with them, I need a brace for both knees and one for my back, and that's just to play horse. So he's <laughs> just kind of a shadow of what he used to be as a player. And we started lamenting together about this, um, this, this reality that we just continue to get worse and worse. And we have this desire to tell our kids sometimes how good we used to be. You know, how before back surgeries and arthritis and the abandonment of all fast twitch muscle fiber from our bodies, we were actually really good players. And then we were talking about how pathetic it is to try and convince our kids how good we used to be at sports. How they, like, no matter what you say, they just kind of look at you like, I'm not really seeing it. But luckily for me, I found a picture. I used to be really good. (laughs) The point of this, deterioration and decay is not always an easy or a really fun thing. When a company that was once thriving and advancing starts to decline, when a family that had hopes and dreams and plans begins to fall apart, when a church that was at one time learning and growing and reaching out to the world with the gospel, slowly but surely starts to turn inward. Decay can be a very tragic thing. But perhaps the form of decay that is saddest of all is the decay of the human spirit. To see a person that was at one time full of hope and promise and potential and courage, someone who was moving towards character, someone who is walking down a path towards God, start to sink and drift into a life that's distressed and empty and anxious and atrophied and without honor. To watch someone and remember who they once were and think about what they might have become, that is perhaps the saddest decay of all. And David, who we've come to know and love in this series, had a front row seat to watch that process go down in the life of a guy named Saul. David watched Saul's heart slowly deteriorate. But Saul didn't start there. Saul didn't like, enter the picture already deteriorated. If you read 1 Samuel 9 and 10, you'll find that Saul started off with so much potential. Samuel, the, the great prophet Samuel, who often spoke and was the mouthpiece of God, said this about Saul Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. And that's, a, that's a very rare phrase used in Scripture. No one like him among all the people. A, a high, high compliment. And Saul was humble. There was a humility to him, he did not think he was more than he was. This is what he says when he was chosen, when he was selected by God to be the first king. His response was, But am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing to me? A few years ago... uh, a number of kids from our church were involved in a journey theater production of Beauty and the Beast. And in the show Beauty and the Beast, there's a character named Gaston. And Gaston is sort of the town hero. He's like the guy that everyone turns to. He's good-looking and strong and athletic. And, and so you know, all the girls kind of like him. And Gaston's the guy that anytime anything good ever happens in his life, his response is, of course it has because I'm so great. Of course you picked me, who else would you pick? That is not how Saul was. Saul was humble, just like I am when I beat Pastor Nick in disc golf. I just take on this posture of, you know, but who am I to beat Nick by 10, even 12 strokes? There's this generosity inside of Saul as well. In fact, when he was first anointed king, there were these factions of people who were warring against him, who were fighting against him being the king. And so, after his power had become established, some of his supporters said to him, and this is 1 Samuel chapter 11, Who was it that asked, Shall Saul reign over us? Turn these men over to us so that we may put them to death. Here's Saul's response. No one will be put to death today, for this day the Lord has rescued Israel. See, that that wasn't a common response by a new king. And we see that in the beginning, there was a gracious, generous, forgiving spirit in Saul. He was only 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 42 years. But by the time he was an old man, his mind and his emotions were in utter ruins, He was tormented by despair, driven by pathological jealousy. He'd lost the respect of the people around him. He was alienated from his own children. He was incapable of love or peace or joy. He was just a shell of the person that he once was. And the question is, how did it happen? How does a life deteriorate so badly? And the answer is, of course, Nobody plans it. No one sets out and says, you know, I'm going to waste and ruin and destroy my one and only life. Friends, it just happens. One day at a time. Moment by moment. One decision by one decision. You see, I believe the real problem for Saul was that he never made the choice. He never had the courage to see and face his own brokenness. And when you get get right down to it, I believe that's the difference between Saul and David. Both of these two men were broken. Neither one of them were perfect. But David, David had the courage to look inside and say, search me and know me, O Lord. Help me see the places in my life where I am weak and vulnerable and broken. But Saul never would. And the reason this subject I think is important for us is because I believe that you and I face the same choice. Will we go the way of Saul or will we cultivate hearts like David's? And so this morning in our David series, we're actually talking about Saul, about how spiritual decay happens in the human heart. And the first thing that Saul does as we read about his life is that Saul learns to tolerate subtle disobedience to God. He learns to justify. He learns to rationalize behaviors in his life that don't line up with what God wants from him. And there are a lot of examples of this. Let me give you one. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 13. This is the early stages of Saul's rule. He's just become king, he's at war with the Philistines. And Samuel says, Saul, listen carefully. Here's what God wants you to do go away to Gilgal and wait seven days. Go there and wait. I'll show up, I'll come, I'll offer a sacrifice. And I'll instruct you in what God wants you to do next. So your job is to do this, to go and wait and just trust in God. And so Saul goes. But it's the seventh day, and Samuel has not yet come. And things are starting to get rocky, and morale is going down, and some of the soldiers are deserting. And so Saul is getting anxious. And by the way, this is a pattern for Saul in his life. Fear and anxiety and insecurity often overwhelm his faith, kind of overtake his ability to truly trust in the Lord. So what does he do? He offers the sacrifice on his own. He takes matters into his own hands. Instead of bringing his anxiety before the Lord, he allows his insecurity to push him into disobedience. So Samuel shows up, just like he said he would, and says, what have you done? God only asked you to do one simple thing. And here's Saul's response. When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You see, Instead of just confessing or admitting his mistake, Saul justifies. He rationalizes. He makes excuses. Any of you here watching the NBA playoffs? This isn't in my notes. I'm just throwing this in for second hour. I didn't talk about this in first hour. We'll see how this goes. Any of you watch the NBA playoffs? Do you remember game one of the finals? Game one of the finals, scores tied at the free throw line. This guy from the Cavs misses the free throw. Another one of the guys from the Cavs, a guy named Jared Smith, gets the rebound. He can easily put the ball back up and put it in the, in the goal for the winning basket, and they would win game one. It was a huge moment, right? But what does he do? He gets the rebound, and he dribbles away from the basket. And everyone's like, what are you doing? Ultimately, what happened is he, he thought they were winning. He got the score confused, and so he got confused, and he dribbled away. But then after the game, when everyone said, like, what are you doing? Instead of just saying... Ah, I totally got confused on the score and I blew it. To which everyone would have said like, oh man, that was bad, but you know, we're moving on. He said, no, 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 I wanted to do that. I was trying, he starts to make excuses, he starts to try and rationalize, he starts to try and rationalize or justify his behavior, which was clearly the wrong thing to do. And so then what do people do? The media just goes nuts and starts to attack him. It's like a feeding frenzy. Like The guy's just getting pummeled in the media until finally he has to just kind of go, okay, I just made a mistake. And you know what's funny? As soon as he does that, all the talk goes away. Because there's something about vulnerability. There's something about authenticity. There's something about the, the ability to just say, I blew it. I messed up. I made a mistake. That just sort of calms the waters. Something about... Like God in us that appreciates that in people. But Saul does not do that. Instead of admitting his mistake, he just rationalizes what he's done. And so I need to ask you this morning, friends: Are there any places in your life where you're tolerating even subtle disobedience to God? Are there any places in your life where you have just gotten used to? It's just standard practice? To not be fully aligned with the way God wants you to think or act or live. Where have you, for whatever reason, decided to do your own thing and you've decided it's okay? At work, at school, on social media, with your money with what you watch on TV, with the music you listen to, with the way you are interacting with someone that you are not married to, with the way you bend the truth just a little so that you have just a slight advantage or that you sound a little better than you actually are. Are there places in your life where you're tolerating disobedience, even subtle disobedience to the Lord? See, we have this ability, friends, to justify and rationalize things in a way that's actually really scary. It's not that bad. It's not really a problem. Everyone else is doing it. They are worse than I am. It's just for this season, for this moment, in this particular instance, it's really not that big of a deal. But in this story, we, we see real clearly what clears the murky waters of morality for Saul. Saul. What is it that kind of gets us back to what was right and what was wrong? What sort of kind of like takes the gray out of the situation again? It's Samuel. Samuel shows up. A godly person who will tell you the truth. Those are some words to write down today. A godly person who will tell you the truth. You see, I'll tell you where rationalization dies. Rationalization dies when you share what you're thinking, what you're doing, the way you're living with the Samuel in your life. You see, I can justify a lot of bad thinking in my own mind, but when I tell Todd Schaefer or Dan Larson or Paul Richter or Doug Crane, usually it clears up pretty quickly. And if it doesn't, they'll say something like, Let's talk about that some more, which is generally code for you are way off track, or maybe even just slightly off. Let's talk about that some more. And here's another thing. If there's something I don't want to tell those guys, that I'm sort of keeping from telling them, that I sort of avoid sharing... That's probably a pretty good indicator that it doesn't line up with what God wants for my life. Friends, spiritual decay decay happens in the human heart when we learn to tolerate subtle disobedience to God. Second, spiritual decay happens in the human heart when we learn to tolerate the loss of personal intimacy with God. Something so simple and yet so significant. This is 1 Samuel 16. It says, now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul's attendant said to him, see, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the liar. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes on you, and you will feel better. So Saul says, that sounds like a good plan. Let's do that. Let's find that person. He agrees. And they find guess who? David, verse 23. Whenever the spirit from God came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. Then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better and the evil spirit would leave him. Now this is kind of a strange story and it's a little bit of a troubling text actually because you know, first of all it says the spirit departed from Saul and the question that arises for me, maybe for you is, is this who God is? Is, is God fickle like this? Does he abandon people? Like, if I'm, if, at some point, if I'm so bad, will God just depart? Would he just take his spirit from me? Like, take not your Holy Spirit from me, Lord. Does God sort of go like, if you're bad enough, I'll do it. Is that what this passage is teaching? I don't think that it is. But furthermore, it says God then doesn't just like, take his spirit, says he sends an evil spirit. And that doesn't sound like God at all, really. Like, we don't read that other places, that you're just waiting, maybe God will send an evil spirit on me. And so commentators have wrestled with this passage, and there's been a lot of discussion and debate, a lot of thoughts, but the one I find most convincing is that a better translation of the word evil is actually distressing or troubling. It's a little more accurate. And so God sends this distressing or troubling spirit in order to try and get Saul's attention. The goal for the Lord here and and always for God is restoration, he's always pursuing us, he's always trying to bring us back to him and what he's saying here, what the message of this passage is, Saul, I cannot condone the path your life is on and I hope this experience of pain and separation will get your attention and cause you to turn back to me. But however you interpret these verses, this much is clear. Saul is going through somewhat of a personal collapse here. He's suffering from violent mood swings, from paranoia, from fear, from tremendous anger. And in all of it, what he discovers is that when David plays his harp, he feels better. Cutting right down to the bottom line. When David plays his harp, I feel better. Now, this certainly tells us something about David about David's heart for God, his heart for worship, his skill as a musician. It tells us something about the power of music and worship, which we've talked about here before. But I also think it shows us something about Saul's willingness to rely on someone else's connection with God instead of his own. You see, in a sense, Saul is just using David here. He's just using David's music to avoid having to face the deeper issues going on in his own heart. This is what we call in our world escapism. Friends, this is nothing more than spiritual escapism. Listen to verse 23. Whenever the Spirit from God came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. Then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better see, that's all Saul really wants. He just wants to feel better. He just wants a quick fix. But that's not what he needs. What he needs is to examine his heart and discover that he has grown distant from God, that he and God are no longer close. He needs to repent and draw near to the Lord, but instead he continues to just settle for temporary relief. Now let me make a couple qualifying statements here that are important. Not all pain and suffering are the result of being far from God. I'll say that again. Not all pain and suffering are the result of being far from God. Maybe you're here this morning and you have or you do feel down or discouraged or even depressed. And perhaps part of your issue is that you are not walking close with the Lord. But maybe, maybe the core issue, the central issue, the real issue is that you are dealing with deep grief or past pain or even some chemical depression of some kind and you need therapy or counseling or even medical help. Not every problem is a spiritual problem. Friends, not every problem is a spiritual problem. When we make every problem a spiritual problem, we quickly get into the realm of spiritual abuse. Not every problem is a spiritual problem, but not every problem is not a spiritual problem. So let me be clear, there are lots of reasons for pain. But I do wonder if perhaps some this morning, kind of like Saul, are hurting because you've learned to tolerate a distance between you and God that God does not want. Maybe you're troubled in spirit. Maybe there's something not right deep in your heart, the peace, the shalom that the Bible talks about is largely missing from your soul and you've just been looking for relief in order to feel better. Maybe you like to get distracted just like Saul did so you work a little harder. You put in a few more hours or you watch TV or you play video games or you eat or you drink more than you care to admit or you buy something or you just turn on music and friends maybe God just wants to ask you a question this morning maybe the most significant question of this entire message how are things between you and me really? Maybe God just wants to ask that of you today. How are things between you and me really? You know I wonder if you'll have the courage to do what Saul didn't. To spend some time alone and move back towards intimacy with God. To establish or reestablish a rhythm of regularly and constantly connecting with Jesus. Because, friends, spiritual decay happens in the human heart when we learn to tolerate the loss of personal intimacy with God, when we just rely on intimacy we used to have, or we just rely on the intimacy of others, the intimacy of another person, the intimacy of a spiritual community, but we never actually connect with God personally. Friends, every single time a person decays spiritually, you can trace that back to a moment in time where they disconnected from God and they never reconnected again. Friends, this is not a religion. We're here to talk about a relationship with the living God of heaven and earth. Do not learn to tolerate religion, just going through the motions, holding God at arm's length. He wants to and longs to have a personal, intimate relationship with you that continues today and tomorrow and the next day after that. Then there's a third thing that happened. To Saul. If we turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18, we read about it. This is the point in the story when the dynamics between Saul and David, their relationship sort of heats up. And at this point in his life, David is doing really well. The Lord is just blessing him in amazing ways. Listen to these three verses. Verse 5 Whatever mission Saul sent David on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. Verse 15, when Saul, when Saul saw how successful he was, that's David, he was afraid of him. And then finally, verse 30, the Philistine commanders, even the, the enemy commanders, continues to go out to battle, and as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers, and his name became well known. And so the word that keeps coming up about David is that he is experiencing success. David is successful. This is a highly successful point of his life. But there's another word that describes David in this chapter, maybe even a bit more powerful. Let's go back to verse 1. It says, After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan, that's Saul's son, became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. Verse 16. All Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. And then finally, the beginning of verse 20. Now Saul's daughter, even Saul's own daughter, Michael, was in love with David. You see, David's not just successful. He's loved. He's beloved. There's just something about his success, his heart, who he was, that, that's winning people to him. And all this comes to a head right in the middle of this chapter. Verse 6, it says... When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs, with timbrels and lyres. They danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. I'd like to sing that song on Sunday mornings if Ali could only do it. (laughs) Saul was very angry This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands? What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Friends, spiritual decay happens in the human heart when we learn to tolerate envy in our hearts towards others. When envy becomes something that we no longer even notice, that we just live with and it becomes the usual. Here's a basic definition of envy. And by the way, I'll just say this. Sometimes we think of envy as this, this big thing this big moment in life that we might experience here or there or every now and then, let me suggest to you today, the envy is alive and well in our world. It is much more pervasive than we we see or even care to admit. And it's even alive in the church. Here's a basic definition of it. Your life threatens my identity. Your existence threatens the security I feel in my soul. Who you are, what you're going through, the circumstances we're in, make me feel insecure about who I am. And friends, the first sign of envy in your life, the first sign that there might just maybe be a little bit of envy taking root in your soul is this. You'll start to throw spears. Spears will start coming out of your mind and heart and mouth, hurtful words, degrading words, gossipy words, maybe not even words, maybe just vibes, maybe just an attitude that you're putting off, insults, insinuations, little remarks or maybe big ones that are aimed at taking another person Down, maybe you've experienced this, maybe you've had some spears thrown your way, maybe you've tossed a few yourself at people you love, at people you would call friend. You see, envy cannot appreciate what someone else has. Envy like, destroys the ability for you to appreciate what someone else has, even someone you love. Because you, when you're envious, when envy starts to take root in your soul, you can't appreciate their house or her car or his attractiveness or her popularity or their success. You, you can't just appreciate the fact that someone is happily married without deep in your mind and heart these words emerging, but I am not or they seem happier than us. You see, envy makes everything about you. Envy wants to make you the center of the universe, friends, but that's the opposite of love. You see what love does? Love shifts our focus to the other. Love says, now you're free to focus on them. Envy says, focus on you. Love says, focus on them. Listen to these words from Romans chapter 12. This this is a passage in the chapter about what the love of God does in our lives, what it looks like to live from a place of knowing the love of Jesus. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. When someone's happy or glad or celebrating, you can just enter right in to their celebration and be happy for them and with them. When someone's sad or devastated or hurt, you can enter in and you can understand how they feel and you can join them in that feeling as well. You see, you put your focus on them, what they're going through, what they're feeling. That's what love does. But envy doesn't do that. And envy says it's all about me. And friends, envy is so tricky because all of us think of envy and we think like someone got something I wanted. They got a car or a job and now I'm envious. But envy shows up in, in the most subtle, strange, subversive places and in, in ways that we won't in, don't even always expect. I'll share a story with you that's a little bit embarrassing. A few years ago, some of our best friends from Ventura, you remember me talking about this, the wife died. And uh, the decision, we were going back down for the, for the memorial service, and the decision was made to just have me be one of the people that shared at the funeral service and to let the pastor, the new pastor down in Ventura, be the one who officiated the service. And my buddy kind of told me this on the phone. Hey, I'm going to have this other pastor do the service. Not you. I'll just, I'm going to have you just share. Which, by the way, I want to say, like, I thought it was the right decision. Like, that was the right call in my mind. But I also have to tell you that in that moment when I heard that, a little battle with envy emerged. And I started to say things like, well, why does he get to do the service and not me? He wasn't there. He didn't know her the way I know her. He didn't sit with you in waiting rooms for hours while she was going through procedures. He didn't do any of that. I did that. I should be the one officiating this service. You see, friends, in a moment when my focus should have been 100% on supporting my friend, envy said, this is all about you, Dave. In a moment when I should have been mourning with one of my best friends in this world over the loss of his wife, There was a battle inside of me to make it about me. And praise God as your pastor, I do want to say that the Holy Spirit won that battle. God moved me off that place real quickly. But even in moments like that, envy has a way of just emerging when you least expect it. And maybe you've been there. When your friend at work gets a promotion and you should just be happy For You should just celebrate her when another kid gets the starting job on that team or is voted into that office or position that you'd kind of wanted for yourself. Or a sibling got some praise from mom or dad that you'd kind of always wanted. Or one of your friend's kids gets the Job or the promotion or the scholarship that you wanted your kid to get. You see, here's the thing, or another thing that envy does: it robs you of joy. It just robs you of joy for the other, but it also robs you of joy for yourself. Envy is a joy robber. It will, it will, it will annihilate joy from the entire equation. Listen to these words. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. Let's hear the refrain again. Saul has slain his thousands. David has his tens of thousands. So let's break it down. There are two people in the entire nation who are being celebrated and sung about here, Saul is one of them, and he can find no joy in this moment. Think about that for a second. That is the power of envy, to rob you of joy. Pastor Nick shared a quote with me this week. It was while we were disc golfing and I beat him. The process of success in another person's life, I'm sorry, let me say it again, being a smart, I like. The presence of success in another person's life is not the absence of success in your own. The presence of success in another person's life is not the absence of success in your own. You can put a lot of words in there for success, right? The presence of popularity, the presence of attention. But that's what envy wants you to believe, friends. It wants you to believe that someone else's success or popularity or affirmation will rob you of the affirmation or popularity or success that you deserve. And it will rob you of contentment and joy and peace and security. And thus we get to the great lie that lies behind envy, the lie that's down deep at the very core. And here's the lie. Here's the lie envy wants you to believe. This is where envy grows and finds its roots. You are only as valuable as. You are only important or significant when. See friends, envy does not really care what you fill in that blank with. It can work with anything. You are only as valuable as you are pretty. You are only as valuable as you are successful. You are only as valuable as you are smart. You are only as valuable as you are funny or popular. You are only as valuable as you are seen as spiritual. You are only as valuable as you are admired by your colleagues. You are only important or significant when your kids perform. When your family looks like it's all together. You are only important or significant when you have the nicest car, or lots of friends, or get the best grade, or your marriage is filing, firing on all cylinders, that's when you're important. That's when you're significant. That's when you matter. You see, friends, this is why the gospel is the great enemy of envy. The gospel is envy's kryptonite. It is utterly powerless in the face of the good news of Jesus Christ. Because not only does the gospel say your value and your significance and your importance is not measured in comparison to what others do or have. Your significance doesn't matter compared to what other people have achieved. It's not about are you as good as them or better than them or do you live up to the standard of the people around you. Not only is that not the case, friends, Your value is not even measured by what you do or have. That's what the gospel says. The gospel says you are immensely valuable and your significance and importance are established for all time by the fact that the God of the universe sent his one and only son to die for you on the cross. You matter and are significant because the greatest being in the history of the world, the God of heaven and earth, gave his one and only son, gave his life for you because that's how much you matter. There's nothing you can do, there's nothing you can say, there's nothing you can achieve in this world that can change or alter or tweak that fact in any way. You see how much security, see the gospel is so simple. God loves you so much that He sent His one and only Son to die on the cross and to be raised to life that you might be restored and redeemed and reunited into relationship with your Heavenly Father. And we hear it every week and we hear it so often. And let me tell you, students, it is a truth that is so powerful that it will change every moment of your waking life. Every moment, every experience you have in high school or middle school, walking walking those halls, wondering what all the other kids or all the other adults at work think of you, those moments will be utterly and completely changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because instead of wondering, instead of thinking, instead of worrying about what everyone else thinks, or even about what you think about yourself, you can rest in this security. God loves me. He adores me. I'm like a diamond in the rough. He loves me so much that he sent his one and only son to this earth to die for me. I am one of his kids. You see, it's a life that's built on and lived from a place of value and significance and security like the world has never known, like the world can never provide because it can never be taken away. You see, friends, if you want to kill envy in your life, believe the gospel like don't just believe the gospel believe the gospel sink it down into your heart god loves me no matter what he gave his one and only son for me that's how valuable I am. that's how significant I am. and so guess what now you're free now you're free from having to prove how significant you are how valuable you are how much you matter You're free from the comparison game that this world wants you to play. See, the the gospel is so powerful that every single week we gather here and at the end of our time together, we come to these tables and we put a stake in the ground and we declare it again. Here's why we matter. Here's where our security and significance is founded on, not on our behavior, not on even our religious achievements. You see, sometimes in Christian circles, we just take worldly achievements and we substitute religious achievements, and God says, this is not about religious achievements. It's about understanding the grace and love of God and how powerful that is to change your life, to change how you live in this world. So this morning again, I'm going to pray and then I'll say amen and we'll make our ways to these tables and we'll do this thing that for some of you sometimes seems routine and road and insignificant and yet it is the most significant thing you will ever do and that's declare that I matter, that I have value because God's son gave his life for me that he shed his blood on the cross. And so today as you come, maybe you need to come with a disobedient area of your life. Someplace where you're just living outside the lines of where God wants you to live. Maybe it's subtle, maybe it's not, but maybe you just need to bring that to the table today because what you'll find there is grace, what you'll find there is significance, but what you'll also find there is power to live a different way. Maybe you need to come this morning and you just need to get honest about that question. How are we doing really? Really? Because this table is also an invitation. It's an invitation from God. He's inviting you again. Come be close to me again. Come have relationship with me. Stop holding me at a distance. Stop living your spiritual life through other people or just through a church community. Let's connect again, you and me. That's why I sent my son. That's why he died. So there would be nothing between us. Maybe this morning you need to come and there's some places where you've been tempted to be Envious. and you need to dig into that a little bit and you need to ask God what does the gospel say about this what does the gospel say about how I'm feeling what does the gospel say about how I'm responding what does the gospel say about these spears that I'm tempted to toss at even the people who I love so I'm going to pray and then I invite you to do your business with the Lord and then come the tables will be open you can take the elements back to your seats and receive them when you're ready Let's pray. Father, this morning, thank you again for the simple, profound and life-altering reality of the gospel. Thank you that we have this example in David, that he was a man who lived from that place of confidence and security, that he knew how loved he was. I ask God that you would keep us away from trying to do it in our own strength, trying to prove our value or significance, that you would not let spiritual decay happen in our lives and hearts, that you would show us today, Lord, show us and reveal to us by your Holy Spirit the places where we are starting to go our own way, that you bring us back to yourself. That's our prayer. We love you. We thank you, Jesus, for being our friend. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.